Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Audrey Simons and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon. Here with my co-host, Audra Simons. Audra, hello. Hi, it's great to be here today. And I can report that I'm back in the UK and the weather is British summer, which is somewhere, (laughs) I don't know, I think it's somewhere in autumn or spring for the rest of the world. (laughs) That's fantastic. I heard it was raining there. So I I thought of you with uh, the humidity last week in Virginia, now coming back to rain in in the UK. What What a travel schedule. That's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> I'm back on the right time zone. <laughs> oh, that's got to feel good. So I'm excited for today's conversation. This is one of one of my favorite, favorite topics. Um, so excited to welcome uh, Joshua Corman. He is the Vice President of Cyber Safety Strategy at Clarity and the founder of I Am the Cavalry, a grassroots organization focused on the intersection of digital security, public safety, and human life. Wow. Josh, welcome. Hi. I'm excited. So, Josh, so good. you have such an interesting background. And I've read lots of different speeches and things that you've been giving in Congress. I've been, you know, I've been cyber stalking you. Um, but I just wanted to say, you know, you have a fantastically interesting background. Do you want to share a bit about your background with our audience? Oh, boy. Um, so I'm, a, I'm not, <laughs> I, I like to say I'm a hacker, philosopher. Uh, I'm philosopher by training from into the hacker community. I have systems thinking and I want to be a superhero. I just don't have superpowers. So I somehow ended up in public policy trying to advocate for where bits and bites meet flesh and blood. Um, so I don't know how I got here. I don't know what I'm doing, but it seems to be working. But um, you know, I, I try to be a protector and uh, tackle hard problems. So it's not even clear to me how I got here, but... Um, I think I'm drawn to high consequence things and my philosophy and systems thinking background gave me some unique perspectives that aren't normally brought to this space. And it's allowed us to have new and novel impacts uh, as a result. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So I'm just going to quote you a bit just to kind of send you the direction, things that I'd really like to hear about. Um, one of the things you have made statements about is like attacks on healthcare are increasing in volume, variety, and impact. And with consequences now, including loss of life, the candid truth is you say that you're more concerned about cybersecurity in U.S. healthcare than you ever have been. And like the majority of healthcare regulations have been focused on confidentiality of, rec- confidentiality of records, if I could say that. Um, however, you say, you know, cyber safety is patient safety. Can you talk around this for me and really kind of explain it? I like the sound of it, but I want to know more. Sure. Um, well, even beyond. So I founded IamTheCavalry.org uh, almost exactly 10 years ago. August 1st will be our birthday. Uh, born out at the hacker conferences in Vegas. Uh, besides Las Vegas was the, the family launch. And then we had the main stage at DEF CON uh, the next day or two days later. Um, we focus on wherever bits and bites meet flesh and blood. And the challenge statement I gave to the hackers when I was coming out of some grieving process, um, 
before I lost my nerve was our dependence on connected technology is growing much faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety and human life. It's in our cars, it's in our medical devices, it's in our power plants, it's in high-speed rail. I said, uh, I'm worried where bits and bites meet flesh and blood. And unfortunately, the public consciousness was not there yet. So if the cavalry isn't coming, maybe it falls to us to do what we can do, to be a voice of reason, helping hand, uh, and try to use empathy uh, and build a coalition of willing, a coalition of the willing with you know anyone in these safety critical industries or public policy precincts, so we can be safer sooner. So we said eventually we'll figure this out, and there's harm, but we want to be safer sooner if we work together. We're going to be a left of boom. So um, that included hospitals and healthcare, um, and in fact, we thought we'd go for cars first because there's only twenty car makers. So my first uh, public writing, you know, deliverable was called the Five Star Automotive Cyber Safety Framework for Connected Vehicles, because there's only 20 of them, but there's 10,000 medical device makers, and in the U.S. alone, there's 7,000 hospitals, and uh, you know, these are obviously international problems as well. But um, we thought we'd build our muscles and and technique on the 20 car makers. But um, to our surprise and delight, there was an incredibly brave um, and courageous and heroic hacker that didn't know she was a hacker in Food and Drug Administration, Dr. Suzanne Schwartz. And she became and, and maintains uh, the status of being one of the, the, the high tr- highest trust, highest impact collaborators of my life. Um, and we've done miracles together on a regular basis. So I think that biased me. In fact, a lot of folks think I and the Cavalry is a healthcare initiative. It's not. We do tons with maritime, uh, aerospace and aviation, high-speed rail, uh, food supply, power and electrical, water and wastewater, you know, wherever bits and bites meet flesh so and blood. Um, how, how but, do you, but yeah, healthcare really sucked me in. But how do you convince yeah. these different arenas, shall I call them, um, that they need you? How do you convince them? How did you convince the car makers? Like it, I have to admit, I've been around... Um, in lots of different areas of security for quite a long time. And, and sometimes pursuing getting to market overrides security. <laughs> um, and so how do you prove to them that they need you or they need to be thinking about what you're bringing to them? Yeah. Um, there's no single trick, um, but we, we started from a, a good heart place of empathy and what's their common cause and common purpose. Um, and that empathy came from me being shattered um, from my uh, loss of my mom and the, the impetus and the, the thoughts of this. And I realized that it wasn't shattered or broken. It was like enhancing authentic human connection and really, really speaking to the heart of the matter or to common cause, common purpose, shared values. So I found that we couldn't just be a pointing finger at past failures, we need to be a helping hand towards future success. So I, I found that we couldn't use our jargon and lexicon. We had to learn theirs. Uh, we had to meet them on their turf, meet them where they are, figure out some common language, common priorities. And that wasn't the same for every industry and it wasn't the same for every stakeholder. But it started with, um, we have a burden to, to go the extra mile to understand what they care about. If I squint and zoom out, I love the question because I haven't really thought of it this way, but one of the early successful sentiments I gave my teammates was 
there's a promise and a peril to connected technology. Mm-hmm. Of course, I want this connected medicine, these breakthroughs to, you know, save more lives, to be more efficient, to maybe cure cancer and stop stealing our loved ones from us. Of course, I want that. And if we're cavalier about exposure to accidents and adversaries, we could shatter the trust in those. So there was a pretty key moment at a National Highway Transportation Safety Administration event. Like Congress was kind of yelling at them saying, why aren't you listening to the hackers? They're showing that you can hack cars. We don't want people to distrust cars. And the opening speech from Chairman Rosekind at the time was pretty defiant. He, he seemed frustrated he had to be there and he gave his impassioned speech that was really compelling about how many human lives are lost every year on the roads to human error and human choice. Humans are terrible drivers. That's why we have to get to autonomous and semi-autonomous vehicles sooner. And even if they're, you know, no one's ever been killed from a hack. And even if they were, we're going to save many more lives that we're going to lose. And, and, you know, I'm in a room full of good faith hackers from academia or, um, you know, Chris and Charlie were there, the, the famous guys that hacked the Jeep on the highway. Um, and I, when he was done and he had gotten that off his chest and the room was kind of quiet, I took the first comment and I said, sir, I absolutely agree with you. You're completely right. And any exotic attack that triggers a crisis of confidence in the public to trust those vehicles will postpone your dream for five to 10 years. And then he couldn't refuse my truth either. Because sometimes the, the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. And really what we're doing is integrating what they want to accomplish with what we know. Um, so there, we have an unsized, unquantified, under, under, misunderstood risk. There's always a cost of benefit or risk reward. And we want to integrate that, not supplant their cost benefit decision, but enhance it. In fact, um, one of my uh, first recruits met, he didn't even see the call to action in Vegas, but Bo Woods is one of our, uh, our first recruits and best collaborators for the duration of these last decade. He helped take the uh, automotive five-star that we had, we had written and he wrote it as a Hippocratic oath for connected medical devices, same five things, but very much in medical language. And his beautiful finesse was something along the lines of doctors and nurses and caregivers since the dawn of the profession already inherently care about do no harm and the preservation of life. And increasingly technology plays a supporting role in the fulfillment of that craft and trade and, 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 and profession so too, shouldn't your technology support and subordinate your objectives? And so we just kind of couch these things, not in what we care about, but what they care about. So part of the answer here is, um, you know, empathy, uh, doing the work, uh, spending time among uh, the people you're trying to work with and influence, and then find where there's common cause, common purpose. I love that. It's the hard work of trust building. Right. It's not it fear mongering. It's trust building. Because yeah. it's, I, I think there's also, you know, there, there's always this desire for a one size fits all, right? And Answer that doesn't and work. Just, <laughs> it just doesn't exist, right? And 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 I love that that thinking because it's so critical if you're going to make any kind of movement forward, um, you know, particularly when you know, kind of to your to the point earlier, um, you know, the calculus is well, we're going to save more lives than it takes, but you know, any loss of life is unacceptable, I, I, I guess. And, 
for sure. And I, yeah, also, yeah, also that, <laughs> yeah, you know, and so it's, uh, I, I always struggle with that, that kind of thinking, like we've got to wait for the absolute bottom and death and destruction. And, and then we're going to really, really, really take it seriously. And it, it shouldn't have to get to that level. I, and I, it seems like the tides are turning there. I mean, I'm talking like 10 years ago thinking, but I, I feel like, and I love your perspective here, attitudes on that front are like, no, we need to get ahead of it. We need to be more preventive. Um, is is the tide I feel that is coming along? Well, I mean, back to my philosopher roots. Um, one of the lights I don't even know where I amalgamated this from, but um, as a species, we tend to adopt technology for their immediate obvious benefits, but we're really bad at the cost benefit right. um, analysis. The, the, the costs come later, right? They're less obvious. Take asbestos. Like we introduce asbestos on purpose. There, there is a philosophy about that where humans flow like water. So, so if it is easy or it appears more easy, people will tend to go in that direction and technology has right. given that to us. Like how people give away their privacy right. through convenience. So the convenience of my phone is actually, well, I give away my privacy, my location, all my key details sure. because it makes my life easier. Yeah. Um, and sometimes not in good ways. So, um, the cyber asbestos was a term I used early on. I haven't used it in a while, but, um, asbestos was actually pushed on purpose by underwriters laboratories because it was flexible fire retardant. Uh, it was a miracle. We didn't know until much later that it caused mesothelioma and cancer and, you know, had to condemn schools and factories and, uh, and hospitals and the like. So, you know, we are in a rampant adoption phase of everything. You know, I know this conversation is not going to be about AI. I listened to that great episode you did with uh, uh, Casey John Ellis from Black Crowd about this, but, but, you know, we are not just going faster than this sound. We're going at ludicrous speed. You know, we're gone plaid. Uh, it's, it's crazy how much we adopt, but what we wanted to do was try to show, I think you can deliver a hard truth if it's delivered, you know, candidly, but kindly, or if it's calmly, right. A lot of us sound like heretics, uh, even if you're right, you can, you can be wrong. You can be right and still be wrong, um, in your delivery. And, um, I think we've also had to take a, a long view. Um, I, I told the team early, we have to be patiently impatient. I try to set their expectations. So we're going to be tenacious and on goal and on mission, but we're never going to steamroll somebody because that'll, that'll backfire, backfire. So, um, what's that old proverb you need? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together or something like that. Um, so it's been a combination of these things, but, um, the tide is turning a little bit. Sadly, it's because we had to, we had to have a lot of harm. Um, a law professor, Andrew Matuishan, has been with me since before the beginning. When I, I met her when I was researching Anonymous and stuff. And uh, when I was launching this, she said, Josh, everyone's waiting for a cyber 9-11 or cyber Pearl Harbor. And not only are those, you know, offensive uh, metaphors that trigger people, uh, it's going to be more like a cyber Cuyahoga. I'm like, huh? <laughs> and she, she told me about um, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire and stayed on fire from pollution wow. uh, before we would do something about it. But she said it didn't just kind of catch on fire once. This is about where the rock and roll hall of fame is, by the way. Oh, wow. She said it wasn't just once it caught on fire, like plural times. It burned down bridges and factories and enough was enough. And someone caught, you know, a photo that finally tipped consciousness and the clean water act passed. And then the EPA, um, shortly thereafter. But I did my research. It caught on fire. Like, um, what was it? Uh, 
like oh, like 21 or 22 times across a 70 year period before people said enough is enough. And she was trying to set our expectations that you're going to have to see harm. It's going to have to reach a critical mass and then you'll see political action. And while I was at CISA, I know we're going to talk about some of that, but I went into emergency federal service when the pandemic started, where I was asked to be the chief strategist of what became the CISA COVID task force to protect hospitals, their supply chains, and ultimately the vaccine efforts under Operation Warp Speed and its successors. Um, but when while I was there working on hospitals and the pandemic, um, during that time period, if you look at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy needs, the things we need to survive as a species, like food, water, shelter, safety, we had successful electronic disruption of the water we drink, the food we put on our table, oil and gas pipelines that fuel our cars, homes, and economies, the schools your children attend, municipalities who run towns and cities, federal agencies, and even timely access to patient care during a pandemic with now quantifiable loss of life as a result. Stuff's on fire. So that Cuyahoga River is blazing. And when this happens, you start to see political wealth. So in a bipartisan uh, manner in the House and the Senate, with the White House uh, and the new Office of Cyber, National Cyber Director, ONCD, with the traditional NSC or National Security Council, like there's a very unified recognition that volunteer only and free market forces only take you so far. We cannot be cavalier about providing trusted, trustworthy, and resilient food, water, shelter, safety. The time and place to use federal power, that time is now. And they're trying to rebalance and reshape more trusted and trustworthy um, digital infrastructure. So it's been a long road. I mean, my road on this started before Cavalry, but I don't want to get into the rugged software manifesto. But you know, I started realizing that software was becoming critical infrastructure, like steel and concrete, but it's just not nearly as reliable. And uh, and yet we're putting it everywhere. So you know, this journey has been long and we're not out of the woods. It's getting going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But I think when you build the trust before they saw the harm and then they see the harm they turn to you instead of lesser ideas from lesser people with lesser motives. You know, they're, they, they, they're still there. They're still sabotaging us and trying to prevent progress. But, um, but we're at the table in a way that I don't think we would have had we not put in the hard work and investment so long ago. So should we jump into a bit more? I'd, I'd kind of like to dive down into a bit more kind of the current state of hospital cybersecurity. If you're happy to do that, I'll give you a choice. Um, <laughs> my entire worldview got shattered recently. I can tell you how I see it today, <laughs> or I can show you how I saw it just before and then modify it with what's changed in the last two months. Um, which would you like? <laughs> to be honest, I'd love to actually understand how and why it was shattered. Yes. Um, if you're okay with that. Sure. I mean, I, I told you before, I'm a philosopher hacker. I spent 25 years in the cybersecurity community trying to make sure people understood this and we invest properly. Um, and I still am going to fight that cause. Um, I think I have to do it the latter one. I don't even know if I can do the, the first one I offered you. Um, I'll, I'll make the, the minimum pivot to your, to your desire here. So this cavalry thing has been 10 years. In the meantime, we started another nonprofit called CyberMed Summit where we work with doctors and ERs and hospital administrators to show them experientially the 
introduce a, a compromised device into the clinical setting that it can have a loss of life. So we kill people in simulations. So we've been doing the work to make sure people understood this. The pandemic, we got some proof of loss of life, both in our front page Wall Street Journal article we could touch on or some data science my team did at CISA. But I've been trying to ensure that we can finally get the political will to have mandatory minimum cybersecurity hygiene, both for the medical devices and technologies we depend upon for the delivery of care, but also for the operational environments of hospitals. And in December of, um, uh, well, I guess December slash January, the omnibus package, despite, I testified last May um, for Senate help, uh, the first loss of life, to in part get enough political will to pass the Patch Act, which is essentially seatbelt laws for medical devices. It's mandatory minimum cyber in statute so the FDA can regulate safer medical devices for the future. And some of the medical device makers did not want that, so they spent a lot of money fighting against it. And my testimony helped cinch the political will for um, at least the Senate side to fight like hell to get it squeezed into the omnibus bill. And they did. So it's law of the land now. Uh, there's a story that we maybe want to circle back to on that, but that was like a major milestone and accomplishment to make sure hospitals, large, medium, small, and rural can benefit from safer devices in the future. But then we wanted to, we needed to shift to hospitals. Senator Warner was concurrently writing a paper called Cybersecurity is Patient Safety, uh, based on a lot of the work um, we had done together and some of the events that had happened in the world and the pandemic work. And in the House, Robin Kelly of Illinois has been working for years, even before the pandemic, on some mandatory minimums for hospitals, but also stimulus for small, medium, rural hospitals that don't have the finances to meet those minimums because they are the target rich for the cyber poor. And we thought, okay, we, we just have a, there's a canary in the coal mine here that there's political will to say no to industry, to say no to lobbyists and do the right thing to make people safe. Let's go to hospitals next. So I've been on this journey really, really hard. We see political will. The White House added to it. We saw more evidence of harm in hospitals. So I was at this place where I think we're on a path, even though the, the private sector is fighting it, where we're going to have mandatory minimums and we're going to fund it properly. We're going to identify these uh, risks and that come in connectivity. Uh, during my congressional task force for healthcare uh, in 2016 and 2017, we said, uh, if you can't afford this, they the hospitals said we can't afford it. And I said, if you can't afford to protect it, you can't afford to connect it. And they didn't like that very much. So I tried to sound more like Stanley. And I said, okay, fine. With great connectivity comes great responsibility. And once you added this digitized care, you expose yourself to accidents and adversaries and predators have taken notice. And since 2016, healthcare has been the number one target of ransoms worldwide. In fact, in these current moments, I'm going to say some uncomfortable things. Uh, of the 16 designated critical infrastructure sectors, Healthcare and public health, specifically the delivery of care within healthcare and public health, uh, has the unenvied position that it has more ransom disruptions, larger, larger disruptions, longer disruptions, and the most life safety disruptions. In fact, the other day I just saw that the a report from IBM said that the global average ransom, which in, in my opinion is the least important metric, but um, the overall average ransom was like uh, four point something million dollars but hospitals are 11 million on average. So they're also the most expensive of the ransoms. So um, you don't want to be the most disruptions, largest disruptions, longest disruptions, and most, most dangerous disruptions. You don't want that, that position, but we do. So here I am working on, let's bake this in. 
that I'm getting to your, your inflection point. And it looks promising, but it's going to be a hard fight. And there's really two camps that have formed. There's those that believe we're doing the best we can. And there's those that know we aren't. That latter camp includes myself, the CyberNet Summit guys, House and, Con- House and Senate and Congress, bipartisan ways, the White House. Like, we're, we need a bigger boat. Like, we're in very bad shape. Um, so there I am cooking along. And you might be saying, okay, well, what chatter do you? Um, well, um, even though I knew this isn't the first and it won't be the last, um, sometimes you have to see it in print uh, and have something acknowledged out loud. But um, St. Margaret's Hospital in Illinois closed its doors forever. Uh, and it's not the first rural, uh, smaller rural hospital closure. We'll touch on that in a second. But it, uh, it's the first to officially cite its ransom event as a contributing cause of its oh, death. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, it's not even the majority cause. I mean, hospitals are strained. The hospitals have been in a death spiral for a long time. So in the course of like confronting this really uncomfortable truth, I'm saying to myself, we're at record high financial strain. Most of the hospitals I talk to that are small, medium, or all these target rich and cyber poor, they'll tell you they have one to four weeks cash flow on hand. That's about it. And then I think about it for a second. I'm like, we're on track for over 700. We had over 700 ransoms on hospitals per year for the last several years. And we're on track to shatter that record this year. And a typical ransom can be six to 12 weeks in duration. So if you've got one to four weeks cash flow on hand and a ransom can uh, go six to 12, um, the only thing worse than being down for six weeks is being down forever. So that's not the shattering part. I've been tracking this. One of the reports I hope we touch on from CISA is we used a natural experiment to measure and quantify excess deaths after a very large impact on a state and region. Um, so I know how to calculate these things. Um, what we know, I'm going to say the next minute, I'm going to avoid saying cyber. Um, what we know from the New England Journal of Medicine article about heart, um, heart attacks during the U.S. marathon is that if you have a heart attack, 4.4 minute longer ambulance ride can uh, have a statistically significant elevated loss of life or mortality rate after 30 days. So 4.4 minutes is enough to elevate loss of life for heart. We know for strokes, time is brain. So the golden hour, golden hours, one, three hours could be the difference if you walk in, talk again, if you're, you're breathing. Um, so these are time sensitive issues that need proximal care. So 4.4 minutes can kill you for heart and four hours can kill you for stroke. What do four weeks do in the state of Vermont when it was down? So we were looking at um, proximal access to urgent care. Uh, if you put a pin in a map and draw a circle around it or just the, the driving distance around it, um, let's say the non-cyber part for 60 seconds, I delayed it. So here you go, ready? Um, over the last five years, of the 7,000 hospitals in the country, 85% of them are small, medium, and rural. 15% of them are huge. Okay? Of the small, medium, and rural, we have seen um, that uh, they don't really invest in IT or any, anything like that. But what we've seen is they're the most financially strained and 200 of them have closed in the last five years from financial insolvency. When the, that pin on the map is removed, anyone that lives nearby and doesn't have proximal alternative urgent care is more likely to die from heart, brain, car accident, gunshot, whatever, because they can't get timely access to patient care where latency matters. So on top of that, what's harder to measure is how many of them were financially distressed enough to be acquired 
into a capitalistic predatory M&A or merger and acquisition where they're not dead, but they're on life support and they're, they're gutted, they're strip mined. They take the good nurses and doctors, they take the good equipment. There was a front page story in the Wall Street Journal from Elliot Emmons a couple weeks ago about how maybe they're not shutting down, but they're canceling uh, and removing lots of procedures. Um, so if it's a latency tolerant thing, fine, drive four hours, five hours. It's offensive to me, but it's not fatal. But if you need time-sensitive care uh, and there's nothing for hours, several hours away, a lot of Americans are going to die. And this is not just a U.S. problem, by the way. So I'm looking at this where 7,000 hospitals, maybe like 700 of them are either closed or on life support or in a coma, essentially, because they've been strip mined. And that was before the pandemic. Pandemic made it worse. They couldn't make high-margin, high high-profit procedures. Their beds were full. Um, a lot of doctors, nurses, and surgeons retired died from COVID, died from non-COVID excess deaths that we studied, which were in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, so doctors and nurses shortages are leading to 200, 300% traveling nurse premiums. So payroll went way up. So the net result on the other end, now that the pandemic is quote unquote over, um, some of the monies and safety nets are gone. If you want to borrow to make up for your financial strain, lending is non-existent or unfavorable right now for small and medium rural hospitals. And you're wondering why I'm talking about all these non-cyber things. Add to it, though, that if you're already on the ropes and we're already losing hundreds of hospitals to closure and or for-profit strip mining, what if we have 700 more chances per year to hit that button that they won't recover from, which is you lock them up for more than the cash flow they have. And maybe you're wondering, well, isn't that what insurance is for? Except that most of the cyber writers, cyber writers of insurance lost money in 2020 and 2021. Some left healthcare entirely. Some made it cost prohibitive through what's called risk selection, uh, where they only insure the insurable. And some of the hospitals I work with paid eight times as much for 50% of the coverage that it used to have. So they're just in a death spiral. And I have to ask myself, how do you make the powers that be in the public-private partnership and the federal government, how do you make them care about the cybersecurity of hospitals when they don't care about the existence of hospitals? And it's not a defeatist tone, but like, is this a pimple on the ass of a terminally ill cancer patient? Like, we have, we are a part of a dysfunction. But the, the, the heartbreaking part for me is, if we don't make them more resilient to these attacks, we could see elective closures of more hospitals where people live. And the idea of putting more cost burden on them when they're on the ropes just feels like untenable. And uh, so back to the empathy thing, I feel for these organizations who both can't afford to invest in more resilient care and can't afford not to. And as I've been escalating this, it's very difficult to find anybody who's responsible for the strategic capacity planning of what we used to, you know, fund called critical access hospitals. There are 50 bed hospitals where we might otherwise have a care desert. We've had a lot of closures. We haven't had a lot of additions. It just feels like something that got orphaned at some point in the increasingly privatized uh, medicine world. I'm not even making a social comment other than um, basic human needs at the bottom of Maslow's that keep us from being Lord of the Flies or killing each other are food, water, shelter, safety. When we lack for access to those basic human needs, bad things start to happen. And we are increasingly, I, my hunch was somebody in a strategic planning office, I just need to find their name. They probably expect 
you know, this many closures this year from financial ruin. And I wanted to warn them, there's a new variable in your formula of ransom disruptions at will. And sadly, when I went to the big hospital trade associations, they were indifferent to this. They, they actually think these hospital closures are good right. because they get to buy them. Um, and they believe <laughs> they're better off in their care. Um, and when I went to the public-private partnerships, they don't see this as an issue. They think the future is telemedicine or hospital in the home, all of which are true and valuable, except that you can't do um, you know, emergency stroke treatment in the home. And you can't do emergency cath lab for the heart in the home. There's still a non-zero point of presence that has not been factored. So I just watch these pins on a map evaporating. And as they do, you have a care desert that with or without a cyber attack, um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the number and velocity of closures that are happening in the country. And I know that cyber can make it worse. And I don't see the obvious critical mass path to fixing that, especially when we're fighting each other, when the real enemy is, uh, you know, the scourge of ransomware that's unchecked aggression on not just healthcare, but they're pivoting now to food into water and wastewater and a critical infrastructure. And if we have hot conflicts, we are very prone to further disruption, not just by criminals, but by nation state intent. So I, I would like to stop being so over-dependent on undependable things. And while we have a decade of incredible success for a bunch of unfunded grassroots volunteer idiot hackers that want to make the world safer, I don't really mean idiot. Um, things, the, the attack density has gotten worse faster. The dependence has gotten worse faster. And we are very reluctant to do the things necessary to reestablish and deserve that trust. I'm not sure if I'm answering any of your questions, by the way. And I hate to do this, but we are at the end of today's podcast. To all of our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining this week. And for our new listeners, welcome. And if you're enjoying the conversation, please subscribe. We're on all major podcast platforms. Until next week, everyone, stay secure. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher.